This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part every day with us. Glad to have you joining us today for a special edition of Knowledge of Wharton, the Great Recession. What has changed in 10 years? 10 years ago, the country and the world went through incredibly challenging economic times. Millions of people lost their homes. Many more lost significant retirement savings. And these are stories that are still having impact today. The financial crisis is a part of American history that many people are hoping that we won't ever have to repeat again. But chances are we will see another version of this event sometime in the future. Over the next two days, we're going to take a deeper look at what happened and why it happened in a variety of sectors and locations around the globe. It is considered by most economists to be the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression of the 1930s. The excessive risk taken by institutions like Lehman Brothers around 2007 and 2008 sent many countries into an economic downturn and significant ones at that. The problems that started in the U.S. soon spread to Europe and continues to in several European nations to this day, including locations like Greece, Italy and Spain. The global crisis changed how governments look at financial institutions and how new rules were necessary. But even with more regulation, some economists believe that Europe could face an even greater crisis in the years ahead. With more on this part of the story, we are joined on the phone by Joam Gomes, who is a finance professor here at the Wharton School, and also by Eric Jones, who is a professor of European Studies and International Political Economy, as well as director of the European and Eurasian Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Joam, Eric, great to have you with us today. Thank you both. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. Thank you. So, Eric, take us through, from a historical perspective first, really how things started to play out for, for Europe as a whole. Well, I think, you know, this is a great segue in your next half hour. The, the shockwaves from the United States spread across the Atlantic and hit countries in the eastern part or western part of Europe first. So it hit Iceland and it hit the United Kingdom and it hit Ireland uh, and mostly that was a banking crisis, but but it soon changed from being a banking crisis uh, in, into something more. So by about 2010, it became a sovereign debt crisis, and the sovereign debt crisis had much more lasting implications for countries like the one where I live in Italy, uh, because it, it wiped out the way the economy was financed and made it hard for businesses to operate. So we've been in the longest recession in this country's uh, post-World War II history as a result of that particular form of the crisis, and that's continued to roll on uh, eastward along the way. But but both banks and sovereign debt markets uh, have been affected as a result. Well, give us the example from Italy specifically, since you were there. I mean, we're talking 10 years after the fact, and Italy continues to be one of the, uh, the premier stories uh, of still trying to get itself out from under. That's correct. Our sovereign debt market right now, well, it's it's the world's third or fourth largest sovereign debt market. It's about two trillion euros worth of paper floating around. Uh, And right now, people, international investors are are selling out again. So the difference between what Italians pay 
in long-term interest rate and what Germans pay has widened out to the levels that we haven't seen since the height of the crisis. Now, I want to put that into perspective, though. We still only pay as much interest in Italy as the U.S. government does. So it's not as though interest rates are extremely high. It's just the difference in the cost of capital. Nevertheless, when you compete in the European marketplace, if your cost of capital is significantly higher in Italy than it is in Germany, it's very hard to make the competition work in your favor. Joam, as you see it, how was the impact on Europe? But also, as this was starting to play out in the United States, did Europe believe that it was going to be impacted as much as they were? Uh, no, I don't think. I mean, to be fair, I don't think anybody thought it was going to be impacted as much as they were. But uh, I certainly think the Europeans started thinking this was an American crisis primarily. And uh, they were surprised. And in fact, they, they blamed the U.S. for, uh, to some extent, exporting uh, the crisis to Europe. I, I think that was a little bit part of the difficulty the Europeans had coming to grips with, with what this episode was and what they needed to do, that they first went through a little bit of denial about uh, the fact that they were exposed, the fact that the problems were actually in Europe about as severe uh, as they were in the U.S., and they had to deal with, the, uh, with their banking system as aggressively as the Americans did on the side of the Atlantic. Um, I think that's definitely... Um, one of the problems right at the beginning. The second problem is that um, the European economy was much less resilient, much less capable of absorbing shocks, um, in part because their governments in the South, but even in the North, have huge amount of debt piled up. And so they were much less capable of implementing large bailouts um, of their own banks, of other banks, large uh, fiscal policies that would uh, involve tax cuts or increases in spending that helped stabilize the economy, things that we did here. Uh, they were just not possible in Europe, or at least when they tried, they quickly got into the sovereign debt crisis a couple of years later. Um, so I, I think the main problem, or I would say the main consequence of this crisis, and, and there's some similarities to the U.S., obviously, is that the, just uh, the general sense that there is in Europe that the, the European project is not delivering economic prosperity. They're just not the same. That belief that we had when you lived in Europe in the 2000s and the late 90s, that European Union was a good thing, not just politically, but fundamentally because it was going to make us uh, in Europe a, a strong economy, it was going to deliver prosperity, and that attracted so many people in the South and the East to the European Union. I think that, I won't say ended, but it took a big, um, we took a big step sideways at least uh, in the last 10 years. Well, people look at institutions and they think, hmm, I'm not sure I want to be part of the euro. I'm not sure if I want to be part of the Eurozone. I'm not sure if I want to be part of the European Union, etc. I think that's being the biggest consequence. What was the reaction of people in the hierarchy of the European Union at this point? Because they obviously had so many different countries, and we've talked about this on our show in the past, is that even though it is a union, you have in many cases 26, 27 different thought processes on economic issues, on monetary uh, policy, etc. So what did the, the leadership of the European Union think as this was really starting to develop into a larger crisis for themselves? Joam? Um, I, I think there were different thoughts depending on, on the countries we, we uh, think about. I think some of them, particularly in the South, thought that this was not going to affect them very much. Um, and I, I think they trusted that the process that it had and sort of led them to grow relatively quickly in the, in the last 10 years or so leading up to the crisis was going to continue. They were not 
they certainly did not foresee the widening interest rates. And they thought that the standard policy recommendations of just uh, a little bit more fiscal support, a little bit of, say, cutting taxes and value-added taxes and things like that, would see them through the crisis, which was fundamentally an American uh, phenomenon. I, I think they were genuinely surprised at how markets turned against them, and they started to examine the large debts and the ability that these countries had to repay debts in light of the very small growth prospects that um, developed after the crisis, and they punished them severely in 2010 and 11 with very high interest rates. I, I think that everybody was very surprised. We had lots of changes in governments as governments were sort of forced to readjust to that and, and implement austerity or sort of present uh, different budgets um, at the last minute. I think in the, in the North, there was a little bit of a but, but even even there, there's a lot of variation. So I, I think it took until about the sovereign debt crisis for there to be a unified attitude in Europe towards uh, how to deal with it. Eric, your thoughts? Well, I'm, uh, Dan, I'm, I, I think I would I would emphasize the extent to which the Europeans and everyone else was caught by surprise with this Great Recession and, and really did not know how to respond, because as much as we compare it to the Great Depression of the 1930s, it's a very different phenomenon that we faced. And, and just to give you one illustration, um, although Giles is absolutely right that some countries had high debts in Europe, Ireland had a debt-to-GDP ratio of about 27 percent in 2007. So that's a very low level of debt. Yep. But Ireland got clobbered on its banks, and the banks were much larger than the country. So trying to bail out those banks was really difficult. And the instructions mm. that they were given from the European institutions was not to bail in any of their creditors. So none of the bonds would be allowed to be liquidated to cover the losses of the banks. Fast forward to Cyprus in 2013. It's a very similar situation. The banks are far too large for the country to bail out. Yep. But that time, the Europeans forced them to bail in the creditors of the bank. So they did exactly the opposite in Cyprus as they did in Ireland. And this is how mm -hmm. we're trying to play through the different games in, in, in responding to the crisis. And the responses have been different from one country to the next, not because the countries are different, but because European policymakers have been learning along the way. So then what, okay. as this started to play out, Joam, uh, obviously, a lot of people that are involved in monetary policy had to start thinking about uh, the banking institutions in Europe and the impact that obviously they were feeling from what was going on with the banks in, in the United States. So what were some of the th things that we've seen put in place with banking institutions in Europe over the last several years to, to start to look ahead and, and see if there is a way to be able to, to mitigate a, a larger uh, crisis moving forward? I think sadly not a lot. I say not in. I think there's been obviously there was a process going on to increase just the amount of equity capital the banks had to to absorb shock that was going on in the background anyway, leading up to the crisis and that continued. Uh, I think the, the stress test that we introduced in the U.S. Europeans quickly um, tried to adapt and and add to to their own banking system. I think they suffer from enormous credibility problems. Uh, in the early years, and they did not, in the U.S., they very quickly developed into a way of sort of assuring investors that the health of the banking system was being monitored and it was capped at high levels. I think in Europe, there was always a sense that those tests were being, it was too easy to rig, it was too easy to, to cheat or not being properly monitored. And, and I don't think it, it, it attracted the same sort of, developed into the same sort of um, stability in the banking system. And, and I think the, the big question that everybody talks about, which is the, the banking union and how do we ensure banks across various 
jurisdictions. Um, I think there's been, you know, separate uh, interventions in the UK, sort of a little different sorts of rules have been put in place. But I think the big, the holy grail for Europeans is to have some way of ensuring uh, that a banking crisis in a country like Ireland doesn't become doesn't become contagious to the rest of the union. Um, and that's just been uh, difficult to agree, in part because there isn't a lot of money to go around and we don't yeah. want to share it with others. Um, so I think we're still uh, much less uh, much less um, prepared in Europe for a future crisis than we are in the U.S. Eric? Well, I, think, I, I think that's right. And a lot of the learning processes that, that have gone on in Europe are learning processes that went on in the United States, for example, during the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s, where you saw state chartered banks that were subject to state-based regulation and insurance uh, grow larger than states could manage, and the federal government had to step in in order to stop that from being a systemic crisis. There are two big differences between Europe and the United States, though. In Europe, at least during the recent crisis, there was no backstop on our ability to finance bank bailouts. So every country was left to copper its own boat. And Mm -hmm. some countries simply couldn't manage that challenge. And they've tried to develop, as a result, a common resolution funding mechanism that would allow the European Union as a whole to begin to finance bank bailouts. Whether that's going to work or not remains to be seen. The other big difference between the United States and Europe is that in the United States, we have one asset where everybody can put their money if they want to make it safe, and that's U.S.-backed treasury instruments. In Europe, there is no one safe asset, as a consequence of which people fly to safety, so they fly into their own government's debt, but then they look around and they realize that their government's debt may not be as safe as somebody else's government's debt. And that's the dynamic that drove the sovereign debt crisis. As investors in Italy looked around and said, our Italian sovereign debt is not as good as German sovereign debt, they sold Italy and bought Germany. And that's the problem that remains to be fixed. Without fixing that problem, Europe remains very vulnerable to the sudden flight capital. And that's what we're seeing in Italy today. What, what's been what's been the impact, uh, Eric, uh, in Europe over the last several years uh, with the linkage of, of all of these different events to the political realm? And I'm wondering how much actually Europeans did put this to a degree in the lap of their own leadership. Obviously, as you both have said, a lot of this was linked back to the United States. But was any of this linked back to the policies and the leadership in various European countries over the years? Well, I think the biggest, the biggest link to the policies and the leadership in European countries is that they integrated European financial markets starting in the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, but they never integrated financial market supervision or regulation. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem that they've begun to address. That's a really important problem, but it took them all the way up until 2009 even to realize that not having a single supervisory mechanism was a mistake. The, the difficulty is, is that at the time that they realized that, and up until about 2012, they, they had the political will to begin imagining how they would do this together. But then the European Central Bank stepped in, took a lot of the pressure away, and that political will evaporated. Mm-hmm. So we're left with a half-built banking union that can't do the job it's intended to do. This is a phenomenon we've seen in the United States, but we have a political union on top of it that ensures things don't get out of hand. Unfortunately, in Europe, that political union is not as resilient. And so the more we try to address the problem, uh, the more the countries seem to be pulling apart at the moment. And we'll see that play out in December of this year as they come to put some of the final pieces of the banking union in place. Tram, your Mm -hmm. thoughts? No, I I completely agree. And and I think uh, 
a dilemma for for the U.S. and and, and for Europe, the European Union is um, that some of these more um, I'm saying interventionist regulation are also going to um, that maybe will will help stabilize or prevent future crises that are also going to harm the competitiveness of these uh, financial centers. Uh, that's something that certainly troubles people in England, in London. Um, that's obviously something that troubles people in New York. And um, But in Europe, of course, that's more difficult because um, there is no centralized political um, unit that has the, the ability to just impose federal regulation over the entire union. Um, and, and I think that that conflict persists. I, I think that uh, in certain parts, I think Ireland's another example, certain parts of the union, there's a sense that I, I kind of like my own rules. I don't like you guys to come in and <laughs> and uh, make some uniform standards that uh, that apply and uh, harm my competitiveness. Um, I think that's a fundamental problem. But but otherwise, I, I think that's that's exactly that's exactly at the heart of this of this protracted negotiations. It's not the only thing, but that's certainly important. And I think that ultimately is going to make it difficult to have a full banking um, supervisory regulatory environment um, in place. Um, that's just something that. It will take time. I think Eric said one thing that I always like to emphasize, which is um, the, the sense that in some sense, the union in Europe is very much sort of a, a version of what the U.S. looked like sometime in the past. And, and, and this sense that, you know, the, the U.S. also had a lot of growing pains in the early in these early decades and so on. And and, and, and this this sense that there isn't a, sort of a, a central unit that is capable of imposing rules and, and people have different pull in different directions, something that we experienced here in the first 60 or 70 years of this of this federal republic. Um, people don't remember that, but that's, that's really something important to to just tolerate about. I, I think the biggest question now is, is just, uh, are we going to stick together or not? And, and, this, and this crisis kind of highlighted uh, the challenges. Do we share enough? Uh, do we benefit enough from being together? I think that's something that Obviously, the Brits made very obvious, but they're not the only ones. And that was going to be uh, one I wanted to ask anyway, Eric, is with all of this, this I don't want to use the term turmoil, but but obviously questioning about where we move forward with banking policy and the, and the banking union, how does the, the move of Brexit potentially impact a lot of this this want to come together by the other entities in the European Union? Well, the, the Brexit move has, has three different effects, and, and it's, it's very challenging to sort out in an easy way. But the first effect is London is the financial capital of Europe, and, and the financial capital of Europe is moving even further from the regulatory uniformity that the rest of the Europeans hope to achieve, as a consequence of which a lot of the business that London does, which is denominated in euros, is going to be moved elsewhere. And as it gets moved elsewhere into these new regulatory environments, um, then the question becomes, well, is something going to take London's place? And this is the second point. A lot of the financial activity is actually going to be diffused across Europe. So rather than see Frankfurt emerges the new London or Amsterdam emerges the new London, a lot of the different things that had happened in London will happen in different parts of Europe. And so we're going to see a lot of diffusion. And the question is whether that diffusion is going to be as efficient as having a concentrated financial center. And this is where the Mm -hmm. third problem comes in. National regulators are very afraid of the consequences of capital moving from one place to the next. And so they're actually compelling 
in terms of regulatory compliance, even big multinational banks to match assets and liabilities within regulatory jurisdictions. What that means in practice is that Citibank, if it wants to have a, a Visa card and issue that Visa card in the Netherlands and France and in Germany, it has to fund that Visa card separately yeah. in each of those three countries. And that's very inefficient for a financial marketplace. Mm-hmm. So I think we're looking at a, a much more diffused and a much more inefficient European financial marketplace looking at the future. Jean, your thoughts? I know. I think that's... <laughs> That's perfect. That's exactly the concern. I think it's just uh, how to design a more resilient system that does not hamper efficiency and does not harm the competitiveness of the union. Um, I think that that transcends finance. That's probably one of the reasons you see low economic growth throughout the union in the last 10 or 15 years. Anyway, even predating the crisis is how do you improve connections and reduce um, and, and sort of further the integration of, of financial markets without harming competitiveness. Um, that's going to be a real challenge. I, I'm very skeptical that this diffusion that Eric mentioned is going to be achievable or is going to be consistent with a high growth, um, high competitiveness environment. I think it will, it will make it difficult to do business in Europe, to, do, uh, to have a financial center anywhere in Europe, or, or even in, uh, I think that people will naturally uh, just move elsewhere. Um, could be Hong Kong, Singapore, I don't know. Um, but I, I just think it really harms its competitiveness. I think the, it only works if there's a large financial center in London or elsewhere, but realistically it has to be London. Um, I think that's a big concern about Brexit. I, I just, I'm just not optimistic about uh, what comes after if, um, if London is not the financial center of Europe. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School, and our special on the Great Recession, uh, What's Changed in 10 Years. Uh, you can join in with your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, or if you can't get to your phone, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Eric, it sounds like that it, that for both of you, and, and I'll let you go first, that uh, this this level of uncertainty is going to remain with the countries in Europe for the foreseeable future, and uh, I guess the susceptibility to being uh, impacted significantly by another recession down the road. Well, I think that's right, Dan. And the, the the challenge is you have to have a common vision for how you want the marketplace to look. And and there are two competing visions in Europe right now. One is a vision where you have solidarity that stretches across Europe, common insurance mechanisms, common state financing, and in lots of ways to, to contain the kind of crisis that we saw in the past. The other is that you put the emphasis on national responsibility. You say, look, in order to avoid moral hazard, each country has to be responsible for its own financial affairs. It seems at this point, I would argue, that the national responsibility model is winning, and that model is very inefficient for the future of European integration and for the future of European economic performance. Jean? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not... I, I think that's exactly right. I completely agree. I'm less sure whether the national responsibility argument is, is winning, but maybe it is. I, I, I we'll see. I think it's an ongoing discussion. Um, but and, and I think that's um, you know if that's true, I think there's the future doesn't look very good. But it, um, if but if Joam, we do see some sort of uh, of fundamental change. 
could Europe be a, a, a potential leader in, in terms of showing strength of, of the banking industry and of the uh, economic of that entire region as a whole? Or are there just too many differences within all of the, the different countries to think that that's even a possible expectation? I think there's too many differences to think that's a possible expectation right now with the union this large. I think it's possible to have a smaller group of countries. I can see lots of different things. But I think we all have to keep in mind, this is not just about banking. The whole the whole construction only makes sense if the whole economy is successful. If there's no successful economic growth, no jobs being created, there's no economic security. This doesn't make any sense. So whatever mechanism delivers that is will be successful. Um, the banking architecture is going to be an important part of that, but it's not going to be... You know, independent of, of right? so I, I I don't see a mechanism in which we we sort of have national responsibility over the banking system um, being very uh, successful in the long run and then sort of diffuse financial centers throughout Europe. As, as I think it, it will move Europe away from services. It will it's one of the most profitable, one of the most high value added services, one of the most important services in terms of of generating economic prosperity in the long run. I think that's a mistake. Um, But um, I hope it doesn't happen. I think it's possible to have a banking union amongst six or seven countries, for example. I think it's possible to grow from there into something bigger. I I think those kinds of discussions um, are always going on in the background. And I think that uh, eventually if we learn that these models of uh, sort of separating Diffuse financial center doesn't work. I think we'll go through that and then expand from there again. Eric, your thoughts? I think I think Joe's absolutely right, and and would only add that you know when I say that there are two two visions for the future of Europe, and one appears to be winning, that doesn't mean that that's my preferred outcome. And I think that there are strong arguments to be made for greater European solidarity, but but in order to achieve that argument, you're going to have to earn the trust and credibility of lots of people who are very skeptical at the moment and have the experience of the crisis to reinforce that skepticism. Mm -hmm. We know from our own history in the United States that that great divisions can be overcome, but it does take time. It takes leadership, and that's what we're waiting to see emerge in Europe today. Great having you both with us. Thank you very much, uh, Joam. Eric, thank you for your time, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. It probably wasn't the first country you would think of being susceptible when speaking about the global financial crisis, but Iceland was one of the textbook examples of taking on too much risk. At the time of the crisis, the three biggest banks in that country had assets that were 14 times the national economic output of the country, and foreign ownership of that debt was so significant that if investors had pulled out, it would have significantly devalued Iceland's currency, the krona. Now Iceland has recovered and is achieving growth rates in the 7% rate zone, even bigger than China. But like many European countries, the concern of another failure is in the backs of the minds of many. With more on this story of Iceland and the economic crisis, uh, we are joined here in studio by Philip Nichols, who is a professor of social responsibility in business and professor of legal studies in business here at the Wharton School. And also joining us on the phone is Thorvador Gilvashan, who is a professor of economics at the University of Iceland. Phil, great seeing you. Always good to see you, Dan. Thor, great to have you with us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 
My pleasure. Thank you. So uh, from your perspective, take us into that period of time and what was going on in Iceland uh, in and around 2006, 2007, that kind of led up to this this massive crisis in the country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what had happened was that um, uh, Parliament had decided to um, privatize uh, the commercial banks. And this was after the privatization of banks, even in Eastern Europe, you know, was uh, complete. And uh, the privatization was botched in that uh, the government had no interest in attracting uh, uh, foreign uh, bankers with experience, but rather uh, handed the banks on a silver plate, you know, to uh, uh, local cronies, uh, whom it took only a few short years to drive the banks um, uh, into the ground. And this is why the Icelandic banks collapsed. It had very little to do with the Lehman Brothers or anything happening in the outside world. That was just sort of a trigger that lit the fire, but uh, uh, the banking system in Iceland would have exploded anyway. What happened was that the local bankers, uh, inexperienced as they were, uh, they went on a borrowing spree around the world, you know. They kicked up their heels like cows in spring, uh, as if there was no tomorrow. <laughs> And as if there was no financial supervision in Iceland, which was pretty uh, <laughs> close to being the case. And uh, so in the fall of 2008, uh, the banks, uh, all three of them, uh, comprising more than 90% of the Icelandic financial system, uh, uh, they collapsed uh, uh, like a house of cards, um, leaving it for the uh, government to uh, call in the IMF for rescue. Uh, uh, and the IMF uh, responded to the call. So the state of the banking industry in Iceland right now is what? Uh, basically, the, uh, the three banks were uh, sort of resurrected uh, uh, after a major cleanup operation orchestrated by the uh, IMF. This meant that uh, uh, foreign creditors were uh, 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 left without being uh, paid to the tune of uh, uh, something like four times Iceland's GDP. And when you run away from private debts, you know, equivalent to four times your GDP, you know, uh, uh, that makes it that much easier to uh, uh, make an economic recovery. And this is what Iceland has done. Uh, uh, our national economic output, or rather the purchasing power of it, uh, uh, was restored in 2016, you know, nine years after the crash. And this nine-year uh, period that it takes to recover is pretty much uh, an average figure if you look at financial crises, you know, for hundreds of years back in history. So Iceland was very much a textbook case uh, in that regard. And now the going uh, seems pretty good, but there are some uh, worrying clouds on the horizon, including uh, uh, wage negotiations that are coming up in which um, uh, wage earners, uh, you know, want uh, a correction for uh, the injustices that they were subjected to uh, uh, during and after the crash. So uh, we are going through a rather uncertain period now. Many people worry that inflation will be back and that the currency will uh, depreciate again and so on. Uh, we'll know more about that, uh, you know, a year from now. Well, um, that was an outstanding summary. The, there's some other reasons that Iceland is a, a kind of a textbook or poster child for understanding the economic crisis. And that is some of the insights we got through the Panama Papers and through the investigations of the um, the criminal investigations into the uh, uh, aforementioned... I, I, I couldn't agree more. Right. You see, uh, when a country uh, uh, experiences what is by many uh, measures the uh, 
the uh, the greatest financial shock uh, recorded in history. Um, uh, then what you need is not only an economic recovery, which has been pretty successful, uh, uh, thanks in large part to the IMF, but you also need sort of uh, judicial accounting uh, and the political cleanup. And uh, there we have a mixed picture. It is true that 39 bankers uh, have been uh, uh, awarded prison sentences by the Supreme Court of Iceland uh, uh, to the tune of two and a half years on average, meaning that the number of man years in prison uh, uh, handed out by the Supreme Court thus far is uh, close to 100. And uh, it so happens that I know the uh, U.S. figure, it happens to be 39 also, <laughs> except uh, the American population is a thousand times larger than uh, that of Iceland. So some people think that is a, a good and healthy sign. Certainly there were much fewer prosecutions for uh, financial wrongdoing uh, on either side of the Atlantic, so Iceland is pretty unique there. But uh, uh, the shadow side of that is that uh, some people are beginning to fear that uh, small fry were basically sentenced to prison where some of the big fish uh, were allowed to get away, raising very sensitive questions about uh, equality uh, before the law and so on. But this, again, is something that uh, we will know more about when the Supreme Court hands out its last sentences uh, during 2019. But then there's a political aspect. You see, basically... Uh, uh, one way of describing what happened uh, to Iceland was that the politicians and the bankers were in bed together big time, and it was basically under the weight of uh, the, uh, this corrupt uh, arrangement that, uh, that Iceland uh, collapsed. And people took to the streets, you know, banging their pots and pans, uh, demanding yeah. uh, reforms and demanding corrections and so on. And uh, the politicians were up against the wall, uh, humbled. Uh, they were visibly shaken and afraid. And uh, they promised to make amends. They, uh, for example, resolved uh, unanimously in Parliament that uh, criticism of Iceland's political culture needed to be taken seriously. But then what happened was that the IMF program was so successful, it worked its wonders uh, more quickly than even the IMF uh, dared hope uh, in the beginning. So the politicians started to think, well, maybe uh, there is less of a need for us to clean up our act than we thought. So they basically reversed it to their, uh, their old tricks. Uh, yeah. a, a, a serious cleanup did not take place. And this exploded in full force in 2016, mm. when it turned out that uh, Iceland had no fewer than 600 names uh, in the Panama Papers. And uh, just for comparison, you know, I, I believe the, name, the names of Ukrainians were, you know, uh, uh, 20 or something. Uh, so Iceland had by far the most uh, names uh, uh, in the Panama Papers uh, per capita of any country. And not only that, there were five cabinet ministers in all of Europe whose names emerged from the Panama Papers. And of those five, three were from Iceland. And one of them is still finance minister. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and this is a clear sign that the political and judicial uh, aspect of the recovery was less ambitious and less successful than uh, uh, the economic uh, recovery uh, appears to be now. But let me then uh, revert to the economic part of the story, if I may. You see, uh, for the first few years after the crash, it was a common uh, view uh, in Iceland and in Ireland next door 
that Iceland was lucky not to be a member of the European Union, lucky or wise, in that uh, we were able to let our currency, you know, uh, uh, depreciate by uh, 50%. Uh, creating conditions for this influx of tourists that uh, have uh, helped uh, uh, revamp the economy. Well, this was something that the Irish could not do because they uh, were uh, part of the, uh, of the Eurozone. But now, if you look at what has been happening over the past couple of years, uh, Ireland has made a more impressive, a significantly more impressive economic recovery than Iceland. So the, the argument that Iceland uh, needed to have a flexible exchange rate uh, a krona that uh, could fall, you know, uh, very significantly, uh, that this was a necessary condition for Iceland's recovery, that looks much less convincing now okay. that we see that Ireland, uh, uh, a member of the euro uh, uh, system, was able to uh, make an even stronger recovery. And I conclude from this, sort of provisionally, that Ireland's access to the European sort of health mechanisms, uh, you know, uh, access to the European Central Bank and so on, did more and compensate uh, for the inability of the Irish to let the Irish pound uh, depreciate, uh, as Ireland could have done, you know, before uh, the advent of the euro. So this is something that needs to be studied uh, uh, quite carefully in view of this uh, evidence that I just uh, described to you. I will just add a, a tiny bit of color to that commentary. Six percent of Iceland's population took to the streets throwing snowballs at politicians. <laughs> I cannot imagine the equivalent of 6% of the population of the United States throwing snowballs at anyone. But it, well, I, I'm surprised it was only 6% to a degree. <laughs> the, um, well, I, I, I thought the figure had been a bit smaller, but, uh, was, uh, uh, but there was a, a broad consensus you know, yeah. uh, among the people, even if only a small uh, fraction of those who agreed, actually showed up in Parliament Square to, uh, to bang their uh, pots and pans sort of Argentinian style. But another but more... They demanded, uh, they, they demanded a clean-up of the central bank. Right. Uh, they got that. They demanded a change of government. They got that. That was sort of an, uh, a, an extra parliamentary change of government that, uh, that we uh, engineered. I participated in, in, in all of these meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the demands that was made by the public uh, in the um, uh, square outside the Parliament building was uh, uh, a demand for a new constitution. And uh, uh, the government gave in. Uh, a constitutional reform process was set in motion. I happened to be uh, involved in that. I was elected to the Constituent Assembly that uh, drafted uh, a new post-crash constitution uh, uh, for Iceland, uh, designed, among many other things, to uh, uh, reduce the likelihood of a, of a repeat by sort of... Uh, uh, use employing American-style ideas of checks and balances and things like that. Uh, the parliament uh, 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 held a national referendum. Uh, we won it hands down, uh, two to one, 67% of the voters said uh, yes, we want this constitution. You know what parliament did? It put it on ice. It has refused to ratify it. Yeah. So uh, that is a sign of uh, sort of the, uh, the uh, fraying social capital of Iceland, uh, 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 parliament has permitted itself, after everything that went on, to try uh, to steal uh, a constitution that has been uh, accepted in a national uh, referendum uh, by failing to ratify it. And uh, fortunately, from my point of view, uh, foreign observers are beginning to notice this. Mm. Iceland has been demoted big time by Freedom House. We used to score, uh, you know, a full house. 
100 points, you know, like uh, Sweden and Denmark and Norway, we are down to 95 uh, over the past couple of years. Because those who, uh, who uh, uh, do these reports for Freedom House, they're beginning to notice that things are not the way they are supposed to be in a northern European democracy. But then you also know that uh, your country has been demoted big time by uh, uh, Freedom House, and uh, that is the way it should be. Uh, but we would have liked to, uh, to stay with uh, a full house of uh, 100 points in Freedom House, but that was not to be. And uh, that part of my story is closely related to the parts that I uh, told you before. So from an outsider's perspective, you know, one of the more delightful, and I, I use that term advisedly in a, a, a crisis like this, uh, outcomes of the political process was the creation of and, and, well, and subsequent uh, election to power of the Pirate Party. Yes. And and you have to love a part. I mean, their name actually comes from a um, a, uh, a movement in continental Europe to uh, ease the strictures of uh, copyright law. Yeah, so yeah. it's piracy, intellectual piracy. Yeah. But in Iceland, to have a party named Pirates take power. Now, what's interesting about the Pirate Party is they tend to be somewhat populist, and so. Yeah. Uh, and, and but one of their election campaigns was "We are not terrorists," a reflection of Britain's um, use of anti-terrorism laws to recapture some of the lost investment that Iceland did not let leave Iceland. You know, it, 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 as the professor mentioned, it's rather helpful in an economic recovery to not pay off your creditors, yeah. which Iceland did and continues to do. And so yes. Britain responded with the only tool they had, which is a gross misuse of this tool, designating yes. Iceland a terrorist. And a yes. populist party that said, we're not terrorists, was voted no. into office. Again... No, no, uh, no the, the pirates have never uh, been in office. Uh, 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 they, they have been a small uh, opposition party, but, but, a, but a good but, one. But, but I mean, voted into... They, they have seats in the, in the all thing. They've seats in parliament, but they've never been uh, in government. I'm, I, I'm sorry. What I meant was they they have a voice in yeah. the in the they, in the process. Yeah, right. They do. They do have a strong voice. Yes. And uh, to those who are skeptical of a party that calls itself uh, the Pirate Party, uh, I can only say that uh, the better you get to know the old parties in Iceland, the less inappropriate you think that the name of the Pirate Party is. <laughs> Where you're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about Iceland uh, and their uh, involvement in the uh, financial crisis and their recovery as well. Joined here in studio by Philip Nichols uh, of the Wharton School and also by uh, Thor Gilvashan, who is an economics professor at the uh, University of Iceland, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney twenty one. So Thor, where are the strengths of the uh, of the economy in Iceland right now? How strong is it, and does it have the ability to withstand some level of uh, of economic disruption in the future? Uh, the uh, answer to your question is a qualified yes. You see, after the crash, uh, the value of the uh, Icelandic currency, the krona. Uh, it fell by uh, by a half, 
And uh, that meant that Iceland was suddenly competitive as a tourist destination, something that it had never been before. So tourists started flocking to Iceland. So uh, Iceland has a population of uh, a bit more than 300,000, but we have more than 2 million tourist arrivals every year. So, uh, you know, uh, seven tourists per person uh, per year is an uncommonly high ratio by Icelandic standards. <laughs> and that has meant that uh, tourism has become uh, the most important uh, source of uh, foreign exchange earnings for the economy. So it has uh, basically outstripped uh, the fishing industry that used to be the number one foreign exchange earner right. and also the energy industry. Right. And that is uh, good news for tourists. One is that, you know, foreign exchange is nice to have to finance your imports and so on. Uh, but also that uh, uh, the fishing industry uh, tends to be quite concentrated, uh, right. dominated by a few oligarchs who were able to throw their weight about in the political arena and so on. Whereas the tourism industry in Iceland, as, it, uh, as in most other countries, it is fairly diversified. You know, many uh, small-scale operators whose names you don't know. So we are hoping, some of us, that uh, this diversification of foreign exchange earnings away from the fisheries toward the uh, diversified tourism industry will actually uh, uh, sort of uh, relax a bit uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, overwhelming political uh, uh, power that the uh, oligarchs in the fishing industry have been able to uh, exert on the Icelandic economy uh, uh, for several decades now. And, and you also... So the, the good news is, therefore, political as well as economic, from my point of view. And, and you also have the impact from, from the tech sector as well, Thor, correct? Right. Yes, there, there's a bit of that. Less than... Uh, uh, it, it plays a smaller sort of uh, uh, macroeconomic uh, role in terms of the numbers, uh, but still it is budding, and, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it promises to uh, become quite... Uh, uh, successful and uh, significantly bigger. But then, you know, uh, tourists are a bit like fish. They can be fickle. So you can right. never be sure that the, uh, uh, the current wave of uh, tourists will uh, be replaced by another wave, you know, for years to come. There are some who worry that uh, history uh, suggests that uh, tourists come and go, uh, that uh, countries that suddenly become very uh, popular as tourist destinations uh, they lose their attractiveness, and uh, tourists choose to go elsewhere. Uh, but we see no signs of that yet, even if Iceland has again become, uh, as it used to be in the past, uh, one of the most expensive tourist uh, destinations in Europe. So many of us are quite surprised by the fact that uh, uh, the currency is now almost as highly valued as it was before the crash 10 years ago, and yet uh, uh, there has only been a modest reduction in the inflow of uh, tourists to the country which tells us that uh, tourists think about more than just prices. Uh, there seem to be things here that they yeah. want to come and see, you know, no, uh, uh, no matter the cost. Phil, your thoughts? I've had the opportunity to visit Iceland a few times. It's gorgeous. It is brutally expensive, and the tourist infrastructure is minimal, understandably, because the tourist season is so short. Yeah. I, if I were Iceland, and the other factors that led to tourism in Iceland were publicity, and access. Uh, Icelandic Air initiated the stopover rule. Wow Airlines uh, became a, a, a low-cost way of getting to Iceland from a lot of interesting places. So there, it's more than just the cheap krona that, that led to tourism boom. And these right. are the same kinds of things that could lead to a decrease in tourism. Whereas the tech industry, even though it's small compared to 
the tourism boom right now right. seems to have a much more solid footing. And there's some really interesting tech coming out of Iceland, which might be where Iceland wants to focus if it's looking for a long-term sustainable kind of growth. Thor, I have about a minute left. So uh, let me yeah. have you answer this question to end it. Do you think there are a couple of lessons that, that other countries learned or could learn from either the run-up to the financial crisis in, in Iceland or the post-recovery as well? Yes. Make sure that your recovery uh, concentrates not only on uh, the economic part, but also on the judicial and uh, uh, political part. Uh, I think one needs the two-pronged recovery uh, from a deep crash like the one that was experienced in Iceland. I don't think we would have Brexit. I don't think we would have President Trump if there had been more prosecutions in the U.S. Phil? I couldn't have said it better. (laughs) Great having you all with us today. Thank you, Thor, for joining us on the phone. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Thank Thank you. Well, on September 15th, 2008, Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy, which sent the stock market tumbling. At the time of the crisis, Lehman had assets of $638 billion and debt of $613 billion, spurred on by heavy losses on mortgage-backed securities. Congress passed a $700 billion bailout bill to save the U.S. financial system. What occurred in the wake of the Lehman Brothers' uh, bankruptcy was an incredible level of change and regulation, including things like the Dodd-Frank Act. Joining us to discuss the banking industry side of this story, we're joined here in studio from the Wharton School by Peter Connie Brown, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics, and David Zaring, Associate Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. Gentlemen, great seeing you. Thank you for your time today. It's great to be here. Pleasure. So, I mean, let's go back for for a little bit of the history on this for a second. And, And again, there were signs that that there was potential trouble in advance of this, Peter. But again, for some people, I think if you are the average citizen, the average consumer, it still did catch a lot of people off guard. Oh, sure it did. I mean, and for a lot of reasons, the the crisis was called in its first uh, incarnation when we were calling it a crisis, the subprime mortgage crisis, right? That dominated headlines for about nine months ahead of time, and and Ben Bernanke infamously saying, we recognize this is a crisis, but it's contained within that market. Right. But it's important to understand exactly what that crisis was, and what that crisis was is that those who had, uh, with relative ease, gotten mortgages uh, for all kinds of homes in all kinds of cities suddenly could not, and those institutions that had been originating those mortgages were uh, teetering toward and past bankruptcy. So this starts to accelerate in early 2007, um, and then by, by the time of August 2007, it was a full-blown uh, crisis in, in markets where major financial institutions were looking at their own risk models and saying, we got this badly wrong. We didn't understand the extent to which this is going to affect our own balance sheets. David? That's right. And uh, what happened then is that um, the crisis sort of moved from the housing market to the you know, the financial markets uh, and uh, the banks that um, found themselves exposed to housing in a way they hadn't really contemplated. And and that doesn't just mean banks in the United States, but also a ton of European banks um, uh, uh, found themselves in trouble. And this is something that people talk about, the way that crises are sometimes transmitted 
into the financial system. And then the financial system transmits them to the economy as a whole. It's a sort of circulatory system, as it turns out, for the you know body economic. And so financial systems are really carefully scrutinized by governments because of just how bad it can get when they run into trouble because of problems in the economy that start somewhere else. How much did, and now obviously the banking sector we're talking about here, they obviously played a, a very important role, but but how much did other outside factors, I mean, we've heard that there were things kind of laid out, whether it be Congress and, and other elements, 10, 15 years prior that kind of led up to what we saw in 2008. Sure. As with any largely unforeseen crisis of this magnitude, there are a hundred but-for factors. That's one of the reasons why it was unforeseen. If it was a single cause, then those opposed to that cause would have been sounding the bell and saying this thing, this aspect of it is going to cause a crisis. So, uh, you know, as a financial historian, I can tell you, we still actively have conferences and write new books about what caused the Great Depression. That's not resolved. Right, we haven't figured that out. Yeah, we're going to be debating what caused the global financial crisis in 2008 for decades to come. Um, but you're absolutely right. In the 15 years ahead and and 25 years ahead, there are all kinds of factors, including uh, that have been floated as being potential, um, but for causal factors for the crisis, including overly uh, lax monetary policy in the early 2000s, a blind eye towards some of the. Uh, abuses on mortgage origination and failures of of regulatory uh, imagination, Uh, questions about the balkanized financial supervisory system in the United States where the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing even for the same institution. Uh, All of these questions have been uh, blamed for for the crisis. I I think of it as a collection of these and many others uh, that once dominoes started falling, uh, the uh, they fell very, very quickly. David? Yeah, there's two things that I think in particular were interesting to think about um, when you think about, you know, how we got to the crisis. And one is um, that Congress directed our balkanized financial regulators not to do any sort of regulation of derivatives, essentially. And it turned out that derivatives were probably one of the channels through which the crisis was transmitted. So that maybe was a failure of regulation, uh, a lack of regulation, a deregulatory impetus that turned out to be a bad one. By the same token, um, you know, the crisis, as Peter observed, started out in the housing markets or the subprime mortgage market. And there has been a very long commitment in the United States, uh, unmatched anywhere else in the world, to create a regulatory system with backstops and financial protections um, to get people into home ownership situations and uh, with 30-year mortgages. And it's an open question as to whether that zealous government push has been such a good idea. And uh, people have wondered about that a lot since the crisis. And one of the things we've realized is it's really hard to uh, get ourselves away from our love of home ownership. Um, uh, that um, we still have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, uh, taking buying up mortgages. Uh, they're now owned by the government. Um, uh, we still have the 30-year fixed mortgage as a as a sort of commitment that's unique in America um, and doesn't really exist anywhere else in the world. And our love of home ownership and that kind of housing policy just has been impervious to change, uh, even though it arguably led to government policies that helped to contribute substantially to the crisis. But, but with all of those kind of entities out there, David, c- could there or should there have been 
people that that just said, hey, listen, we are heading for a, a massive problem here in, in the near future, and we need to look at ways to to turn the course so that we don't fall into a severe economic crisis. Yeah, you want those kinds of eyes on the horizon. Um, and uh, one of the things that the government did or the Congress did after the financial crisis was try to create this committee of regulators uh, that has um, as one of its mandates to keep an weather eye out for macroeconomic problems that could you know, get transmitted into the financial system and cause real problems. And that uh, is something that the government is trying very hard to um, implement not just at the domestic level, but also at the international level, where there's a, an entity that's been created uh, since the crisis called the Financial Stability Board, which is also supposed to have a sort of global at macroeconomic look at stuff. The problem with the predicting the future is it's really hard to do. Uh, they say that economists have, you know, predicted 12 out of the last two recessions. And, uh, um, and you know, I, you know, Peter and I are both lawyers, and I can't say that, uh, you know, um, the wise men of Washington or whatever had their eye on this ball. Uh, and uh, that's uh, a constant problem. Peter? Well, there's this um, – sometimes we think about this as hindsight bias, but there there really were people at the time who were sounding some aspect of some alarm. Now, some of these folks have had uh, absolutely no sense of modesty in the fact that they were making tons of predictions, only some of which came out to be true. But that doesn't change the fact that there were some people um, – who uh, uh, were alarmed at the extent of the uh, of the spread of uh, uncertainty throughout the financial system, whether we're talking about uh, uh, the way that interest rates were shaping uh, savings and investment patterns the world over, um, the over reliance on um, on credit rating agencies whose uh, uh, process, whose financial model itself, was deeply flawed and conflicted to Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and, and much else besides. Um, I think the task is, as we think about this sort of schematically and look forward to the future, um, just as David said, you can see things that cause alarm, right? Maybe yeah. it's the rapid uh, uh, inflation of what by your lights is an asset bubble. Well, then what do you do? Right? Saying, oh, we've got to stop this thing because remember 2008. That's not so easy to do because remember, again, that's one factor among many and uh, knowing when you are observing yep. something that is reckless and likely to, uh, in your view, destroy the economy is, is even uh, with the best of intentions and, and the best of faith assumed, extraordinarily difficult to get right, both in terms of uh, whether you're observing a, a, a real crisis indicator and when if ever, that crisis indicator will, in fact, turn into a crisis. Lehman Brothers goes down September 15th of 2008. And your reaction at that time was what? <laughs> this is actually a funny story. I was interviewing at Lehman's uh, structured finance law firm that day, September 15th, 2008. <laughs> wow. And uh, I was sitting there. And this is in the pre-smartphone saturation era. I didn't have a smartphone. And I was nervous about this. This is a job that I wanted. So I didn't read the newspaper that morning. And I couldn't figure out why they so rudely were not letting ushering me into the senior partner's office for my first interview of the day. It was 45 minutes late when I got in. He didn't make eye contact with me once. I did get that job offer, though. <laughs> Wouldn't have been a great job offer. No, I didn't, I didn't take it. <laughs> okay, there you go. Probably a good idea. Uh, Lehman Brothers goes down on September 15th, David, and you, your reaction is what? Uh, I was fascinated. I'd never seen anything like it. Um, I was teaching at a law school in uh, Southern Virginia at the time, and... I was a student of financial regulation and 
all of a sudden, it seemed like the world was changing. It was, uh, you know, and this sounds terrible because the financial crisis um, resulted in lots of pain for lots of people. But I was thinking to myself, what a time to be alive uh, and an expert on federal financial regulation uh, because um, it was all coming to pass that the government was running around trying to figure out what to do about Lehman Brothers. And, um, you know, uh, I had a front row seat. That was great. It it is amazing, though. I mean, sitting here 10 years after the fact, the impact that this still has. I, I mean, we've talked with both of you over numerous occasions about the fact that, you know, so many people lost so much, average citizens, and it caused people to have to work longer in their careers. They're they're still trying to recover some of that economic loss that they thought they were going to have for their retirement. Mm-hmm. It, it is amazing the scope uh, of just how big this really was. Oh, there's no question about it. It's the jalapeno and the fruit salad, right? And there are a lot of other things that are going on in the world, right? Lots of different kinds of fruit people are enjoying. But the 2008 crisis just put a jalapeno into all of that, and that's all you can taste and see. It's not an exaggeration to trace the line to Brexit and Donald Trump and the global uh, populist reaction to kind of a prevailing uh, uh, liberal order to that crisis. Because it's not just a financial crisis. It's a political crisis. It's a crisis of confidence. Yep. It's a sense that uh, all you have to do to get ahead is be corrupt and big. Because no matter what, everybody will always, uh, you know, the powers that be will always support you. Um, and so I think that the political crisis is, or the, the financial crisis of 2008, just as the Great Depression had done before it, uh, will define politics, finance uh, for a long time to come, even after, long after the fact people stop realizing that that's the uh, that's the the thing that has changed their thinking. But what about the what about the angst surrounding the people that were involved in this? And this is something that we've talked about a lot. But but you know the people that ended up being the ones that were were making a lot of these decisions. We didn't see I, I there. We at times have this want to, you know, let's get a piece of hide, you know, for, for somebody that did us wrong. We didn't really see that, David. Yeah, that's one of the most surprising aspects of the aftermath of the financial crisis to me. Um, you can usually count when there's a, a financial crisis uh, on executives paying a price for it, senior level executives. This happened during the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s when a thousand savings and loan, uh, you know, managers went to jail. Uh, you could see it in the dot com crisis when the, you know, chairman and CEO of Enron and uh, the, the CEO of WorldCom spent time in jail. And then a financial crisis that dwarfed those crises in severity happened, and the government didn't prosecute anyone. Um, and I think um, uh, I agree with Peter. That's, uh, that's sort of um, a different change in policy that I think surprised a lot of people. And um, as some people have observed, including, I think, Andrew Ross Sorkin, the, you can draw a line between the way that the government responded to that crisis, which had a number of um, – Benefits, as well as uh, you know, um, a litany of mistakes, and trace a line from that to the rise of populist outsiders like the current president Donald Trump and people like Bernie Sanders, who uh, have bases uh, in their respective political parties, who feel like they've been left behind and forgotten, and the system doesn't work for them. So th- we get through Lehman Brothers, and then obviously there is uh, the, the want to the bring forth the TARP funds, and you know you have September 29th, and it gets rejected but then it gets approved when did we really start to see when you thought about regulation 
that there absolutely needed to be a change in how a lot of this business was done. So you get the first uh, comments about this well ahead of Lehman Weekend, right? You get a, a blueprint issued by the Paulson Treasury in March 2008. It, uh, by coincidence, although they started working faster on it because of Bear Stearns, uh, but this had been long in the, in the works. And this was a, a, a program of reform. Um, by my counts, my co-author, uh, Sean Venata, we're writing a, a history of bank supervision right now. And by our count, there have been about 20 of these suggestions, which was essentially uh, wipe the slate clean. Let's start over. Let's have a single central bank, a single bank supervisor, macroprudential regulator, uh, and then a single capital markets regulator. Let's streamline these processes. That was dead on the water. Stood on the water because the Bush administration was at historic levels of uh, of disapproval. Um, Paulson now had been uh, implicated in this extremely unpopular maneuver to save Bear Stearns, and so they focused it almost exclusively on trying to uh, save the system, whatever the political cost. There's a great parallel you can watch, right? So Franklin Roosevelt, in his very first fireside chat, was about banking. Yep. Right, and yep. you can still listen to it. It's a remarkable historical document where he's trying to explain what had been done in response to the financial crises uh, that had preceded his inauguration in March 1933, um, and it was Roosevelt on the scene. He was the face, the man, the response. George W. Bush made a strategic decision to withdraw from all of it. Uh -huh. So, who was the face of the crisis response? Well, their faces: Hank Paulson, Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner. Right. This was the face, not Congress. Or sorry, not the president. Uh, Congress was much more involved than the president was, and so that really changes what could be a conceivable regulatory legislative response um, given the president's unpopularity. I mean, it's, uh, let's not forget. Uh, less than two months later, Barack Obama was elected yeah. president of the United yeah. States. Yep, and that was going to be my next question: is the fact you have the switch of president. How did that change that that view of who was the face of, of the you know trying to be the recovery at that point? Right, and the the very unpopular Bush administration, the crisis completely finished it off. Uh, but then the a new uh, you know a new hope took office, and things just didn't get better. Uh, yeah. And that's something that I think hamstrung uh, the Obama administration. Uh, for years. Um, and uh, that was one of the things that I think, you, you know, meant that um, after eight years of the of that uh, presidency and that party, uh, voters were ready for something else, or a lot of voters were ready for something else. I think it's interesting the way that um, Congress responded to the crisis as it evolved. So first, it was a housing problem. There was a problem in the mortgage market, especially the subprime mortgage market. And before the fall of Lehman, Congress, uh, with some serious arm twisting from the Treasury Department, passed a sort of housing bill that would have given the Treasury Department more power over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the sort of mortgage guarantors semi-run by the government. Um, and then during the crisis itself, there was this emergency legislation, the TARP, that was a bailout. Um, and then it took two years and a new presidency to get to the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act. Um, and there, there was, on the one hand, comprehensive reform of the way financial regulation works in the United States. And yet, and maybe this is the way the world works, an element of satisficing and taking what we've got and just trying to make it a little better. So, you know, rather than, as Peter suggested, 
many people have suggested, we rationalize the federal financial regulatory architecture. We created sort of this committee to sit on top of that architecture. And so instead of creating three new agencies, uh, we boarded up the tiniest one and made all the other agencies talk to one another more. And that model of financial reform is, again, maybe about the real world and the difficulties of tearing up um, the things that that currently exist and doing something completely different. But it's certainly a component of the way we've reformed the financial system. We added some tweaks uh, and we've made things better, but um, we didn't rip things up and start all over again, despite, you know, facing this fundamentally... uh, uh, you know, disastrous uh, moment um, and, and trying to respond to it with, you know, fundamental reform or whatever. But I, I wonder if, if people within the banking industry, Peter, would say that, that Dodd-Frank was kind of a, a total redo in some respects. Dodd-Frank's got such interesting politics associated with it. It's important to remember that Dodd-Frank is a, Dodd-Frank is a series of statutes that were yep. passed, right? Um, uh, some having nothing to do with the other. So they're the year a bank's Instincts about Title VII, which governs derivatives regulation, uh, are very, very different. They're largely enthusiastic about those changes, uh, are different from their view of Title X, which created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, yep. uh, which is seen as uh, the industry is quite hostile to its very existence, let alone its policies. Um, and then stuck in the middle are the are the main titles that we kind of think of as Dodd-Frank's titles one and two, which are about how we not how do we avoid Lehman again. Right. Yep. By creating better systemic risk regulation and then the event of failure, having a more orderly liquidation mechanism. Um, and so uh, bankers are sort of all over the map. I think as a historian, I would put Dodd-Frank as a, as a, as a, a very technocratic, very centrist piece of legislation. It's not Glass-Steagall of 1933, which is uh, a big change to the way to the entire structure of the financial system, but it does embrace a view of what regulation should be, which is cooperative with industry. And if you are hostile to that idea, right, some people call that corporatist, so mm-hmm. corporations and governments working as partners to uh, do, um, you know, engage in private sector activities. If you're hostile to that conception, then you really don't like Dodd-Frank because that's what Dodd-Frank is all about. It's, it's also got a very global component to it. Um, it's uh, hard to make too many generalizations about a statute that, as Peter says, does so many different things, some of which weren't even responsive to the financial crisis, but yeah. were sort of good ideas that were out there in the technocratic atmosphere and that got into the bill somehow. But one of the things that Dodd-Frank did that was a little different is it blessed uh, some forms of um, regulatory cooperation with foreign regulators. It required it in some circumstances. And it even included some sort of human rights-y commitments. Mm -hmm. Uh, It asked the SEC to um, create a rule for public companies disclosing how they used conflict minerals or whether their upstream suppliers did the same uh, conflict minerals from Central Africa. Um, It had an extractive industries transparency initiative, which was a sort of global anti-corruption measure that started in London and somehow made its way into the bill. And this sort of international 
cooperation component was something that's relatively different. Um, cooperation had been authorized by Congress with foreign uh, powers before in financial regulation. But Dodd-Frank has, I think, a sort of global feel. And, you know, that seems to me to be sensible because it reflects the fact that financial crises these days spill over across borders and require yeah. a global response. Yeah, that was going to be my point is the fact that, uh, I mean, these are not banks that are specifically linked just to the United States. They We now more than ever in technology has done just kind of increase this. You have more global reach for all of these banking institutions, so you almost have to have a global perspective on, on some of these regulations. That's right. I mean, Peter said that um, we'll be arguing about the cause of the financial crisis for forever, but um, one problem uh, that people have identified is the fact that European banks had just an insatiable appetite for American secured, securitized mortgage products. Um, uh, and um, that was not something that um, American regulators could really control, or maybe they could have controlled it in some ways, but it wasn't that obvious to them. And it, uh, that appetite led to um, part of what people think of as um, an asset bubble in the space. Not that, not that we are ever uh, recession-proof here in the United States, but Ten years later, are are we in a better spot, much better spot? How, how, how do you view what's occurred overall over the last 10 years, Peter? I would separate uh, risks of recession uh, from risk of financial crisis. Financial okay. crises are, are relatively rare. Recessions aren't. So... Uh, just as as the boom bust cycle of uh, of the business cycle goes, it's been an awful long time since we had a recession. So I wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be uh, uh, you know you know uh, hope uh, of course that that doesn't occur anytime soon. But um, you know we'll expect to see that in the coming years, right? Just because we've never not seen yeah. it in yeah. um, in this kind of a cycle. But there's good reason to think that financial crises likes of 2008 are far and unforeseeably far into the future. Banks are much better capitalized, meaning that the ratio of equity to debt is much better in favor of equity than it had been in 2006 to 2008. Um, the new tools in the hands of regulators to see what banks are about are vastly improved, especially for the largest banks. Now, that's changed recently with the bipartisan bill that Congress passed and President Trump signed. But still about the top dozen banks or so are subject to uh, very enhanced, strict uh, supervisory mechanisms. And together they count, account for about 40% of deposits, right? So it's a lot of banking uh, mm-hmm. that's being subject to more scrutiny. So um, while there are certain attributes of crises, financial crises, that are always the same, um, the exact contours are going to be different. And we won't see 2008 as we saw 2008 repeated again for a very long time to come, I would think. David? So I'm generally a fan of what Dodd-Frank accomplished, um, partly because I think the real world makes things difficult to accomplish, and I think Dodd-Frank made things better. I suspect that um, risk-taking, the culture of risk-taking, which didn't serve the largest investment banks well during the financial crisis, has moved to some degree out of those banks, which were more central to the financial system than we realized, and elsewhere in the economy. Maybe they're at hedge funds, maybe it's private equity. Um, And... Um, hopefully that's a better place for risk-taking um, to be located, um, that that uh, will create opportunities for jobs and growth and stuff like that without sort of uh, when the downside comes and it will come, the sort of contagion that um, 
that uh, can characterize uh, risk-taking in the financial sector that um, leads to um, a bank run or uh, something like an asset run that um, we can't predict exactly how it will happen. Great, gentlemen, to have you back. Thank you very much, both of you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Paul. Thank you both. One of the most significant parts of the financial crisis early on in the United States was the housing bubble. Banks were lending out money to purchase homes without consideration in many cases for whether the people could afford those payments. That allowed some people to qualify for a mortgage without putting any money in for a down payment. And when the bubble burst, millions of homes ended up in foreclosure. Various metropolitan areas around the country, places like Las Vegas and Modesto, California, and Fort Myers, Florida, found themselves in much tougher economic times. There was also the slowdown in new home building and the loss of construction jobs as well. To take a look at the impact on housing of housing on the financial crisis, we are joined here in studio by Benjamin Keyes, assistant professor in the real estate department here at the Wharton School and a faculty research fellow with the National Bureau of Economic Research. And joining us on the phone, Susan Wachter, who is a professor of real estate and finance here at the Wharton School. Ben, great seeing you again as always. Thanks for having me. Susan, great to have you back with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. I mean, obviously, Susan, I'm laying out several elements here, but from your perspective, what were the decisions that that ultimately led to the housing bubble? Uh, Let's say the lack of decisions. The uh, response to the potential for expanding market share in the mortgage market uh, drove new players. We had a trillion dollars more of money coming into the mortgage market in 2004, 5, and 6. That's $3 trillion going into mortgages that did not exist before, non-traditional mortgages, uh, so-called um, uh, not, uh, nin- uh, ninja mortgages, no income, no job, no asset. Uh, these were by new players, and they were funded by private-label mortgage-backed securities, which existed, but a very small niche part of the market that expanded to more than 50% of the market at the peak in 2006. Ben? Uh, so I think on, on Susan's point, to just take a, a slightly broader step, I, I think a big theme uh, related to this time period and one that we need to keep a close eye on right now is this trade-off between access and risk and thinking about uh, thinking about lending um, uh, lending standards in particular. So so Susan's highlighting this point of um, especially starting in 2000, late 2003 and then into 2004, 5, and 6, uh, a huge uh, explosion uh, of lending. Um, at a time when interest rates had begun to rise, and a lot of people were expecting the end of uh, of the housing uh, the housing boom. So in two thousand three, um, interest rates start to 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 climb, and you see um, a lot of discussion about how this is going to be the end of the refinancing uh, boom, yeah. uh, which is a discussion we're having right now again as interest rates are starting to rise. Um, and at that point, people thought, well, this is when house prices are going to moderate. This is when house prices are going to sort of um, come back to, to reality because credit is, is not going to be flowing quite as generously and people are going to not be able to afford um, quite as much house given higher interest rates. And so what happens is a lot of lenders come in who are not traditional players in the market. They're funded by um, capital from sources that are not traditionally going towards mortgages, um, and they drive down the cost uh, of borrowing. And that increases access to, to credit, not necessarily only for low credit score folks, but for lots of folks, for investors, yeah. Um, and for middle class folks who want to take out a second uh, a second lien or a home equity uh, line of credit, 
um, and and in doing so, um, create a lot of leverage in the system and, and introduce a lot more risk into the system. So I want to pinpoint something that Ben just said in a. Uh uh, article that I've written in a book, which we are about to come out with, with my uh, colleague Adam Levitan, we actually point to that refi boom, that end of that refi boom, which was huge because after 2000 and the um, uh, potential of, uh, stock market, uh, the stock market losses and the the fears about the year 2000, there was a huge expansion in the money supply. Interest rates fell dramatically, causing a refi boom the like of which we hadn't seen before. That meant it was over in 2003, but that meant many players on Wall Street were sitting there with nothing to do. Aha, here's the answer. A new kind of mortgage-backed security, not one related to refi, but one related to expanding the mortgage lending box. And just as Ben said, not just to uh, uh, less qualified borrowers on based on income down payment, but also to investors. The investor part of the story yeah. is underemphasized, but it's real. In fact, the, there's a false narrative here, which is that most of these loans went to lower income folks. That's not true. Well, and that's a kind of the interesting piece of the story, Susan. I, I, I wanted to get the confirmation from you as well, because the, the narrative has been that you had a lot of people that were the blue-collar families and, and maybe the middle-class families that just got overextended. But you had a lot of people that did have a lot of money that ended up playing a role in this process. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, the evidence that's out there is this was not a directed-to-lower-moderate-income event. This was an event for risk-takers across the board, those who could and wanted to cash out later on. That was a big part of the 2006 and 2007 cash-out. And also, second uh, uh, borrowers were, were getting loans for second, third homes. These are not homeowners. These were investors. There was some fraud involved, putting down that you were an owner-occupant or simply uh, someone writing in what they assumed, which was often that, no, you were an investor, and you were taking advantage of what I, with another co-author, Andrei Pavlov, have identified as underpriced credit. That is, in our system, there's a put option. That is, you can walk away from your mortgage. Uh, these are basically uh, effectively non-recourse loans, so to speak. That is, you can walk away, which means that if you're an investor walking away, what you have no nothing at risk and what's the cost well if rates are going down which they were effectively and if down payment was going near zero as an investor you're making the money on the upside and the downside is not yours it's the banks the business side of it uh the business investors susan did play uh, a big role in this and we saw this i think more so it became a story after the bubble kind of burst is that you saw more and more investment properties popping up in locations around the United States. Yes. Now, that's, that's another side. Now, in some sense, that's the solu that was a solution, because without that Wall Street step up to buy foreclosed properties and turn them from home ownership to rentership, we would have had a lot more downward pressure on prices, a lot of more empty homes out there selling for lower and lower prices, leading to a spiral down, which we were in 2009, with no end in sight. So this step in, unfortunately, to make homes available to people who were foreclosed upon and, and couldn't own. They'd had to rent. But actually, in some ways, it was important because it did put a floor under a spiral that was happening. Ben? 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. I want to I want to balance just uh, this view that um, you know that it wasn't just a subprime phenomenon and it wasn't just lending to lower score uh, borrowers with with the the fact that the the consequences of the bust uh, were much more strongly felt in in minority communities and minority households, um, in younger households and in and in um, in lower credit score uh, households in many cases and so. Um, if you look at where prices fell fell the most, if you look at where um, the largest um, amounts of wealth were wiped out, um, you know the the homeownership rate um, fell most sharply in minority communities. And so, I think it's important to balance the the fact that yes, this was a broad based um, phenomenon. And so, this is sort of you know on the one side we're thinking about the the lending decisions, and we're thinking about the expansion of credit supply, which really did expand in any and all directions, right? Any yeah. direction where where there was appetite. Um, for anyone to, to borrow, and I think an important lesson from the crisis is that just because someone's willing to make you a, a loan doesn't mean that you should accept it. Um, but the the consequences of that of that collapse were definitely not evenly felt. So yeah, um, I'm going to disagree with you, Ben, a little bit on this. The problem is that the most vulnerable households to recession are minority and low income households. Mm-hmm. So the fact that after the recession of 2009, these were the households that were most hit is not evidence that these were the households that were most lent to proportionally. Uh, I have a paper with another co-author, Arthur O'Colin, which points to, uh, and Ralphie Bostic, uh, who which points to the, um, looks at the increase in home ownership during the years 2003 to 2007, and uh, by, by minority area. And there is, there is, the increase was higher in majority area than the minority area. So again, the trope that this was lending to minority low-income households, it's just not in the data. Yep. I com- completely agree, Susan. The point I was trying to make was the, the point about the recession hitting the the minority oh, households absolutely. harder. After the fact. Um, after the fact. The recession. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. So I was trying to distinguish between those two, but uh, but I completely agree with you. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about the housing bubble and uh, what has happened to the housing uh, market and industry since. Joining us on the phone, Susan Wachter of the Wharton School, in studio with Benjamin Keyes here of the Wharton School, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, Susan, then where are we right now where... Uh, you know, we're 10 years out. We still see a decent amount of rental properties out there. We have younger adults who've decided that it's better for them to rent than to actually buy a home. Uh, we've seen maybe a little bit of a turn on that particular piece of the puzzle in recent time. But are we still seeing a, a lot of these investment property owners carrying a lot of the weight of these properties even 10 years after the fact? Absolutely. It's uh, the rate of growth in the uh, transforming of the homeownership stock to the renter stock is slowed considerably. Uh, it's still there, but it's slowed considerably. So we're not in the heyday of 2011, 12, 13, 14. We're, we're in a, uh, in fact, slight uptick in the home ownership rate. However, we're still missing about 3 million homeowners who are renters. And you're, you're saying that uh, millennials have, prefer to rent than to own is not quite right. Rather, because if you look at surveys, there are still millennials and aspire to be homeowners. They simply can't get credit as one of the major outcomes, and understandably so, 
of the uh, Great Recession is that credit scores required for a mortgage have increased by about 100 points. So uh, if you're subprime today, you're not going to be able to get a mortgage. And many, many millennials, unfortunately, are in part because they may have taken down student debt. So it's just much more difficult to become a homeowner. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree between uh, between heavy burdens of student debt and, and really entering a job market during a difficult time for a lot of millennials. Um, they're still not in the position in many cases uh, to be buyers. I think one um, you know, one myth about homeownership that um, that I regularly try to dispel in, in our conversations here is is the myth of 20% down, right? So you yeah. don't actually need a 20% down payment to, to buy a house. And a lot of borrowers, especially first-time borrowers, are using FHA programs where you're putting down 3%. Um, we have great programs for our, our, um, our veterans with the VA program, in many cases, a 0% uh, down payment. Um, but, uh, so while down payments don't have to be large, they're really tight, um, barriers to, to access and credit in terms of, uh, credit scores and, um, and having a consistent documentable income. Yeah. Um, and so those are really, um, you know, in talking about access and risk, the pendulum has really swung towards, um, a very tight credit market, um, that's loosened a bit in the last two years, um, and is probably partly responsible for the uptick among millennials, but still quite tight relative to historical norms. I, I mentioned the geographical element to this in places like Las Vegas and Fort Myers and uh, and Modesto, which really saw an impact from this. Las Vegas was the one that seemingly was on the news almost every day. Uh, where are those cities right now in terms uh, uh, of the recovery 10 years after that? Obviously better, but are, are they in a much better overall perspective, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think the some of those markets are still suffering from uh, having quite a few borrowers who are underwater on their mortgages. And we think of the Great Recession as as sort of, um, you know, as being over um, for a lot of families. Yeah. Um, but in, in some of these housing markets, there are people who are still underwater on their mortgage um, and people who continue to pay um, despite being underwater on their mortgage 10 years later. So, um, you know, in, in a lot of these markets uh, to this point that, that, that you were making and Susan was making about the shift um, – to uh, to single family rentals um, and that taking pressure off of of prices, even in in these markets where you've seen the, the biggest shifts, the Phoenixes and the and the Las Vegases, um, you still are seeing a, a relatively depressed housing market uh, overall. And that's um, you know I think it's for in a lot of those cases, it's really just a function of time that's going to um, lead to a recovery in those markets, especially with uh, with the economy improving overall. Susan. Yes, I agree entirely with Ben. The um, overall housing prices have come back, even adjusted for inflation, just about for the United States as a whole. But in many markets, they have not. It's in a different place. So the comeback is not where the crisis was concentrated. Often the crisis is concentrated in far-out suburbs, like Riverside uh, in, uh, in California. These were the drive-to-qualify suburbs. But now the demand is... Uh, concentrate the growth and demand in cities where the jobs are. And, and are we having even a little bit of that separation? We talk about the income inequality in this in this country at times, Susan. Are we having that even a little bit in the housing market because of some of the places that are, that are here in the United States, the towns where the prices have skyrocketed so much in, in the last couple of years in comparison to you know just availability, as you said, people sometimes need to have a, a location in a city because that's where their job is. There's no question that the overall inequality in wealth and income 
is being um, is being exacerbated by trends in the housing markets, where housing prices are going up, where they're already high in growth cities like New York, Washington, San Francisco, uh, where there is a inequality to begin with of uh, hollowed out middle class, low income, and high income, where low income are renters. And they're facing high, not just higher housing prices, so hard to get into the housing market, but also higher rents, so hard to save for the house. Ben? Yeah, I mean, the higher rents, I think, is is really a challenge. Susan, you just touched on it, that, that um, you know, this shift of um, of borrowers who, who can't uh, qualify for a mortgage, those 3 million missing homeowners that... Yep. Uh, uh, that Susan mentioned, those are three million extra renters, and so they are pushing up prices um, on um, on rental properties in the U.S. and and that's um, that's making it more unaffordable. And so you, you think about the folks who are who are working in the service sector in cities like New York City and San Francisco, where uh, where prices are so extraordinarily high. Um, again, you are going to have to to really commute uh, a long ways outside of the city if if you're going to work. Um, you know, work in downtown San Francisco and, and find something that's affordable for, for a lot of service sector service sector jobs. Susan, how confident do you think that the house building sector is right now, the builders across America, about continuing to put out a significant amount of, uh, of, of new properties? And that being said, that obviously plays into one of the things I mentioned earlier about the jobs, the construction jobs that are involved in this, because the more they want to build, the more people they're going to need to, to put these houses up. Yeah, the uh, house builders are being squeezed on two sides. Uh, they produce at the high end. It's, uh, most production of new homes is at the high end, understandably so, because that's, it's costly to, to build. Yeah. And uh, housing prices have gone up an extraordinary amount on the new housing front. And there, at this point, there's some pressure, downward pressure, simply because uh, buyers are, are, are not buying at these extremely high prices. So the buying demand actually just recently has slowed down, which is why production has slowed down. On the other end, the builders are facing higher costs for wages, higher costs for materials, and higher costs for land, particularly where the demand is. So we still aren't back to construction levels that we were at prior to the, to the crisis. Not to say that construction isn't higher than it was. It is. It's back, but it's not at the levels that it was. Ben? Yeah, I think this is an area just to to piggyback on on Susan's point. This is an area where where government policy is really important. I mean, she mentioned very quickly um, higher labor costs, but that's partly a function of immigration policy. She mentioned yep. higher materials costs, and that's a function of tariff policy in in some of these cases. And I think um, you know there's a real role for for government policy, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see as this refi wave um, sort of. Uh, ebbs, um, and much like the 2002-2003 period, which was really critical um, in thinking about, you know, what role did the government play in keeping an eye on on the the behavior of of lenders and the behavior of you know yeah. risk taking. Um, there's a real role for for the government, not only in those areas I mentioned before, immigration and, and tariffs, but also thinking about credit policy and thinking about banking regulation and thinking about non-bank regulation. These kinds of players who are sort of outside the scope of traditional regulatory purview. Um, so I think there's a really interesting government angle here, too. What's going to be the, the, the path moving forward, Susan, for the lending industry uh, with, uh, with all of the renters out there? And obviously, uh, as you mentioned, the, uh, the, the somewhat concerns that the, the building industry uh, has in terms of times of, of putting new properties up. 
Well, right now, housing prices and rents continue to rise. They're slow, slowing down, decelerating, but they're continuing to rise because of the cost pressures. And I think that that's going to continue. What could break it, unfortunately, is a recession or a rise in interest rates that perhaps leads to a recession along with other factors. So that's when we'll see that happen. And folks are saying maybe in 2020, uh, recession uh, likelihood is, is, is possible. So that would break that side of it. On the lending side, uh, right now, uh, there is oversight. There isn't uh, uh, the, the um, non-traditional lenders in the residential space are basically missing in action. But, of course, uh, it does depend on the future of regulation and specifically depends on the future of the uh, government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie and Freddie, which are due to be reformed, but they've been due to be reformed for 10 years now. Yeah, but from what, what I read recently, Fannie and Freddie have, have been a pretty good entity for the federal government over the last few years as well, correct? Correct. Actually, they're making money for the federal government right now, and they are part of a stable lending pattern right now. Uh, but the taxpayer is 100% at risk. So where do we go? Ben, are we safer from a housing bubble in the future? Relative to 2006 or 2007, yeah. absolutely. Um, but that, yeah, and again, this is that extra trillion dollars of lending sloshing around that that yeah. Susan referenced earlier. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have a lot of people who first time home buyers putting three percent down um, doesn't take a big downturn to to hurt them. Um, in terms of the ripple effects, I think it's much. More, you know, the risk is much more concentrated in the government at the moment between the FHA and, and Fannie and Freddie. Um, and so you don't have the same sort of financialization. You don't have the, um, the CDOs um, and the sort of the broader bets that were being placed on the housing market. So that is um, less of a concern in terms of it propagating to a lot of other sectors. And I think as um, the folks you had on earlier were talking about how the, the banking sector is quite a bit safer and, and being subjected to stress tests. So I think there's certainly... Uh, you know, plenty of opportunity for house prices to fall in a lot of U.S. markets, and um, and a lot of homeowners uh, don't have a huge amount of equity in their homes, especially the recent buyers. Great having you both with us, Susan. Thank you for your time today. All the best. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you, Ben. Great seeing you. Thank you very yeah, much. Greatly appreciate it. Susan Walker and Benjamin Keys from here at the Wharton School talking about uh, the real estate market and where we are headed in the future. That will take care of it uh, for today. Uh, this is uh, day one of our two-day special uh, on the Great Recession. Tomorrow we will be back with more topics, including a look at the uh, employment sector, how the job market has rebounded uh, in the wake of the recession. We'll also take a look at the auto industry, which obviously was uh, uh, quite a uh, important player in uh, the uh, bailouts uh, of those automakers and uh, moving forward with the economy. We'll also talk about the stock market, and we're also going to talk about what schools do in terms of teaching business ethics in the wake of the Great Recession. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 